And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to thy saints in Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way that as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. It's good to have the word open. Thank you, Dwayne, for reading the text this morning. I was reminded of a few songs as I was thinking about this text this week. One song in particular you may not be as familiar with. The the lyrics go like this. He made a change in the way that I'm walking. He made a change in the way that I'm talking. Old things passed away. Behold, everything's new. He made a change in the life that I'm living. I'm born again, set free, finally forgiven. If he can make a change in me, he can make a change in you. It's reminded of a couple other hymns that you probably are more familiar with. Uh, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. And then there's the hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, it's interesting that in songs like that today, you hear stories more and more of how they're wanting to take out some of these words like wretch, (laughs) like sinner, and replace them with some other words. So it sounds better, I guess. But that is the reality that he saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Crossing over. From death to life. That's really subtitled the message this morning. A crossing over from death 
to life. You know, in in the context of Jesus addressing the Jews in John chapter 5, he speaks to this crossing over from death to life. You might remember he's just healed this man by the pool of Bethesda. A man who for 38 years had been sick. This spirit of infirmity. He was lying there beside the pool. 38 years. Sickness. Well, the text tells us in John chapter 5 that this particular healing that Jesus did on this day took place on the Sabbath. And you know, when you read John's gospel especially and you see these words that the healing took place on the Sabbath, you just, as a reader, you go, "Uh uh-oh. Something's about to happen. And on this particular occasion, something, yes, something happens. The Jews get stirred up and essentially crying out, Jesus, what you're doing is unlawful. And a few verses later in John chapter 5, you see... Jesus' words causing an even greater stir among the Jewish leaders as he equated his work to that of the Father. His language is such that it presents him as the Son of God. So not only is the Sabbath an issue, but the declaration that he is equal with God. He is God's Son, in fact. The text says in John 5.18, they sought all the more to kill him. If you go just a few verses beyond that, Chapter 5, verse 24. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but, here's the phrase, but has passed from death to life. The life is expressed by Jesus in that same gospel of John in John 17 as he's praying that high priestly prayer to the Father shortly before going to the cross. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Lord has brought you here today, and I praise the Lord that each of you are here. In this text, I pray is brought to bear upon each soul. And a question right up front, out of the gate. Have you crossed over from death to life? I believe the text will help us come to some understanding of this and to be able to help answer that question. Do you know what it is to have the life of Christ in you? Are you fleeing those youthful lusts? And pursuing those things of Christ, righteousness, faith, and love with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. The text today emphasizes just how big, how mighty, how powerful this God is that we serve. You can read the scriptures and you can see the mighty works of God put on display. But you come to a text like Acts chapter 9. And you begin to see the kindness And the mercy of God, the goodness of God, put on display. The wonderful, the the amazement, the, the miracle of new life, new birth, being born again. Regenerated through his mighty power at work within us. So whether you sit here today and you have a testimony that 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 took you down to the 
the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, at one point in your life. Whether you wondered whether you were going to make it through. Some of you may be sitting here this morning and you've grown up in a Christian home. And all, of you, all you know and all you've heard in your home is Jesus. That's all you can remember, talking about Jesus in your home. This text is a reminder of the one thing that will last. The one thing that ought to prioritize all other priorities. The eternity of one's soul. To know what God has done to make your salvation possible. To, to see who you once were. And the Bible very clearly points out who we once were. To realize what he has made you to be. Who he has called you to be in Christ. To recognize the richness of crossing over from death to life. You once were lost, but now you are found, perhaps as you sit here today. You were blind, but now you see. For what purpose did he rescue you? For what purpose does he allow you to see and allow you to understand? Understand specifically these scriptures. I believe Acts 9 helps us to answer some of these questions and point you toward the power of God at work. Saul, for some time now, for those of you that are here with us, haven't been with us for the last several weeks, we're working through part two in our study in the book of Acts. Last summer, we, we made our way up through Acts 6, verse 8, the speech of Stephen. And we began the summer with that speech. Stephen standing, speaking history, but in the context of delivering history, he was also communicating truths, bedrock truths, foundational truths from the Word of God. And we see where the truths led. Led ultimately to his stoning, his martyrdom, which led to the beginning of Acts chapter 8, the scattering of the church in Jerusalem. And we see that as a result of the scattering, there were some who went to, and in particular, this man Philip, Acts chapter 8, was found in Samaria. And what was he found doing in Samaria? Preaching the Christ. So it's in this context, this, this persecution, that we arrive here at Acts chapter 9. The believers in the church there are scattered... And so the context, when we come to the beginning of Acts chapter 9, looks a lot like, very similar to that described at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Saul is the leader of persecuting Christ's church, causing havoc, arresting the followers of Christ, men and women, putting them away, casting his vote for the death of these followers of the way. Saul is a man who grew up in Tarsus, a city within the region of Cilicia. He was zealous in his pursuit of the law. He was schooled and taught by one of the best of the day, Gamaliel. He served as a Pharisee and stood as witness to the recent martyrdom of Stephen. Saul is a well-educated man who pursued his religion. A religion that operated apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. A religion that seemingly missed the Messiah. A religion that stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ. I'm grateful to the Lord 
that we have very little of Saul's life before Christ. But praise the Lord for the picture that we do have of Saul before Christ. The picture is not a pretty one, is it? As you look at his life before Christ. Think for a moment of your life before Christ. I imagine in a room this size with this many people, there are several stories of what took place in your life before the light of Christ entered in. Some of you, praise the Lord, had a relatively short period of time before you crossed over from death to life. Others crossed over later in life, having spent many years on the backside of the desert, if you will, without Christ, without hope. When you think for a moment where you were before Christ, you remember what you used to do, how you used to operate, how you used to think, what your motivations used to be, the words that you used to speak, even the clothes perhaps that you used to wear, and I'm not speaking of a time when you lived maybe perhaps back in the 70s. I'm not talking about that. I'm not being, not, I'm not, it's not a flashback to the board of pictures from a few weeks ago. I bring that up to speak to an awareness of Christ in you and the heart change that he's brought about. Helping you see in one way how you can help or hinder a brother in Christ. You see, Christ in you helps you consider even in something like your attire, something that you would wear what it means to help a brother or sister and not cause one of them to stumble. Acts 9, 1 and 2 is the continuation of Saul's life before Christ. If things look bad in Acts chapter 8, they look a bit worse here at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. You see, Saul, who had been persecuting the church at Jerusalem, is now extending his reach. He's asking for letters from the high priest to go to Damascus to arrest anyone associated with the name of Jesus. The plan was to go to Damascus, bring back, bound in chains, these church folks. These folks associated with Stephen, associated with the name of Jesus, the way. And he was going to march them back to Jerusalem. He was going to put them in prison. That was his plan. That was his plan. Acts 9 verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, his intended destination. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. You know, some of you right here, we just pause. Some of you can, can relate very well to this text. Because you too, at one time, were carrying out your own plans... You were walking your own way. You were fulfilling the desires of your flesh. And in the midst of doing so, some light came into view. Perhaps, begrudgingly, you entered into the Lord's house on a given day. And you heard a preacher preaching the Bible. You had no intentions of walking a different direction. But God, on that day, got your attention. 
Maybe for some of you it was a friend. A friend who spoke the truth to you. No one had ever told you about the eternity of your soul. No one had spoken to you about the sin that so easily ensnared you at the time. Maybe for some of you it was seeing for the first time a genuine Christian. Living out by faith what it means to be a Christian. I mean, you'd heard of a Christian, but you'd really not seen one. And you've come alongside this person and you actually saw something different. You know, I was reminded of this. This past week, I've been working through and been enjoying this read about George Mueller. Many of you know some particular things about this man, George Mueller. You're probably most familiar with the fact of his association and connection to the orphanages. What you may not know is what George's life was like before Christ. Pretty interesting story. In fact, he's going with a friend, Beta. He's going to attend a, a Bible study. And it's kind of interesting how it all even transpires because Beta is sort of shy and, and, and somewhat tentative and, and maybe even embarrassed to invite George to come to this Bible study. George comes, but he comes thinking in his mind he's going to have some great stories to tell after with his buddies that he's hanging around with in, in the bar. So he shows up at the house. And as he got to the door, this was cold. He got to the door and says he was already beginning to regret coming. George followed his friend Betta into a large library where 12 men and women were already seated in a semicircle around the blazing fire. Betta mentioned towards, he came toward a seat near the door and George was glad to slip into it. He had never felt so out of place in his life. Soon a hymn book was thrust into his hand and George sang along with the others, relieved that at least he recognized the tune of the song. While he sang, he relaxed a little and looked around the room. The group sang another hymn and then another. When they finally stopped singing, one of the men, Betta whispered to George that it was Mr. Kaiser. Mr. Kaiser knelt beside his chair. Let us bow our heads in prayer, he began. George was stunned. He could not take his eyes off of Mr. Kaiser. In his entire life, he'd never seen a person kneel to pray. And not only was Mr. Kaiser kneeling to pray, but he was doing so in a room filled with people. George had always thought that people prayed and sang and taught the Bible the way he'd always heard and seen it done in school and university. But that was not true. Mr. Kaiser was praying to the same God, but in a totally different way than Georgia had expected George wondered what else might be different. Before long, he found out. After a long prayer, Mr. Kaiser got to his feet and he sat down heavily. He picked up and opened a black leather-bound Bible. He began to read, first a verse, then two, then ten, finally a whole chapter. George looked around. Everyone in the room was concentrating on what was being read. Several people were nodding in agreement or smiling as certain verses were read. Once the Bible reading was over, Mr. Kaiser pulled some sheets of paper from the folder on the table beside him, slanted them toward the oil lamp and began to read the sermon. George had heard sermons before, at confirmation, at his mother's funeral, and on those few occasions when he'd managed to get up early enough on Sunday to make it to church. But he had never heard a sermon like this one. It wasn't so much the words, but the way they were spoken. Even though Mr. Kaiser was reading the sermon, he spoke as if every word was important. 
no more than important, vital. George felt himself being drawn into what was being read. The group sang another hymn. And it was announced there was going to be a final prayer. The final prayer was offered up. And once again, George was amazed. It sounded as though this other gentleman, Mr. Wagner, who offered the the final prayer, sounded as if he was talking to someone in the room. George sat in his chair for several minutes after the amen, thinking about it. He was stunned by the whole evening. It was not at all like he'd imagined it would be. These people sang as if they were singing about someone they knew. They prayed as if they were praying to someone in the room. And they preached as if they believed every word they said. It was all very troubling to George on the way home. Better, his friend. Well, what'd you think of the meeting? He says, nothing I've ever done, not traveling to Switzerland, not spending the night drinking and partying, has ever been as enjoyable to me as this evening. He says, well, then you need to come back. We're going to have a meeting tomorrow night. George did go back the next day and the day after that too. Before the week was over, George Mueller was kneeling beside his bed, asking God to forgive him his sins so that he could become a true Christian. It took George only six weeks of going to the meetings and reading his Bible to come to a remarkable conclusion. One that would define the rest of his life. He concluded that he should be a missionary. It was all very clear to him. There were people in the world who had never heard of God, Jesus Christ, or the gospel message. And George Mueller was going to search them out and tell them the good news. Quite contrary to what we see right here in Acts chapter 9 of one who is searching out. Who is it Saul is searching out? He's searching out for these followers of the way. But we see that his plan is just about to intersect with God's plan for his life. This is beautiful to be able to read this and to be able to see in the life of a real human being how God works, how God operates, how God brings about the change in our lives. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, church, appeared to Saul on this road to Damascus. And the text in verse 4 says that Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice first, I I want you to notice this. The Lord knows his name. The Lord knows his name. You might be here today and you might be wandering from the Lord desiring to do your own thing. You you, you might not want anything to do with the Lord today but I want you to know that the Lord knows your name. He knows you. He knows everything about you. Whatever it is you might hold to about God what He can or can't do I want you to know that the Bible does make very clear that He knows Each one. He knows your frame. He knows the numbers of hairs on your head. He knows everything about you. 
On one hand, that might be frightening to you. On the other hand, it's very comforting. Notice secondly in the text that Jesus asks a penetrating question right here. Why are you persecuting me? The Lord, I want you to see this. The Lord is making a connection here. I hope you see it in the text. Christ is identifying himself with his church. He's identifying himself with his church who was being persecuted. And the disciples of the Lord, reference there in 9 verse 1. He's breathing murder and threats against the disciples of the Lord. His church. Saul, you're persecuting me. You see, we need to remember what the Bible says here about Christ's church. The Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. And Christ serves as the head of the church. There's a connection to Christ and his church. Up until this point, I believe Saul had operated largely in ignorance, but apart from the understanding of this truth of Christ and his church. In Acts 9, verses 5 and 6, we see this exchange between Saul and Jesus. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. You see, this man who just recently was breathing out threats and murder against Christ's church is confronted with a light from heaven. He's questioned by Christ himself. Christ, in fact, reveals his identity in the conversation. He says, I am Jesus. Think about that for just a moment. Jesus stops him, speaks to him, identifies himself to him. Saul is on the ground, surrounded by light and a voice from heaven. In this moment, Saul is no longer calling the shots, is he? He finds himself literally out of control. He is not in control. He is out of control. He doesn't have the controls anymore. His trembling, his astonishment prompts a question of surrender. Lord, what do you want me to do? You know, perhaps when the Lord finally got your attention, perhaps it took several years before you stopped rebelling and kicking against those ox goads. (laughs) Do you recall asking of God what he would want for your life? Lord, what is it you want from me? The Lord tells Saul to go into the city. And he says... Saul, you're going to be told what you must do. So here's a man named Saul persecuting Christ and his church. And instead of, instead of just destroying the man, instead of the Lord just taking him out of commission, the Lord opts to use him. Church, the Lord is merciful. And praise the Lord for his mercy. You see, this man Saul becomes... Paul, the missionary for Jesus Christ. Paul, the writer of some 13 New Testament books. The man who imitated Christ with the rest of his life and called others to imitate him as he imitated Christ. That same passion he had in persecuting the church is now about to be channeled for the Lord and his purposes. 
The kingdom of God is going to advance through a surrendered, willing vessel named Saul. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. This is where Saul finds himself. And this is the miracle church of new life in Christ. This is what God can bring about in your life. The one who gave you your gifts, the one who gave you your talents and abilities can fashion you and can shape you and suit you perfectly for his kingdom. Working with the Lord instead of against him. Walking with the Lord instead of walking solo, indulging in your sinful habits and patterns. You see, being in Christ must precede a walk with Christ. Being in Christ must precede, come before a walk with Christ. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. The men who journeyed with him stood. Can you imagine being one of the men with Saul? They're standing there speechless. I think I would have been the same way. They're speechless. They stood there speechless. Why were they speechless? They heard a voice, but they didn't see anybody. Okay? They're standing there trying to figure this out. Saul arose from the ground. When his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand, and they brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now I submit this just for consideration that maybe the Lord in getting the attention of someone else has also seen fit to include you. What do you mean? Well, you might remember the story of Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah was on a boat. And, and God could have very easily gotten Jonah's attention before he got on the boat. He could have, if he wanted to, because he's God, he could have gotten Jonah's attention long before he stepped foot on the boat. But the text says he got Jonah's attention when he was in the boat. Well, it just so happened, he wasn't the only one in the boat. There were a bunch of pagan mariners also in the boat. And so God got Jonah's attention in that boat with all these other people, and God gets glory. Because you see, in getting Jonah's attention, he also got the attention, did he not, of those mariners. Perhaps in your circle, perhaps you were just kind of hanging out. Maybe you were just one of those people who happened to go and show up at a Bible study. And you heard and saw something. And it impacted you. And the Lord drew you in from that. It was kind of like that blinding light experience, if you will, of, of Saul as he's going into Damascus. And isn't it interesting that he's taken into the city of Damascus. His plan was to go to Damascus to arrest and bind and take back some of the Christians, take them back to Jerusalem. And now here he is being held by the hand to go into the city. And no doubt the people in Damascus had heard word of this man Saul We'll see here, Ananias is going to find out about this. Well, at about the same time when this was going on here, 7, 8, 9, we see in verse 10, we arrive at verse 10. I want you to notice what else the Lord is doing. Verses 10 through 16 explain the Lord's vision to a disciple named Ananias. This disciple, Ananias, was in Damascus. It says, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. You know, I, I couldn't help but think there, I was, I was reminded of young Samuel in the house of the Lord. 
Remember that where it responds to the voice of the Lord. Here I am, Lord, speak. He's listening. So in 11 and 12, we see the Lord speaking. Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. I want you to see something here, church. As light is beginning to be revealed to you, perhaps, maybe you think back to that time when there was a little bit of light that came in. As you've been walking in darkness and the light started to shine into your life, I want you to know that not only is God at work in your life, but God is at work in the lives of other people. See, because God uses people to help us be able to see the truth as well. He uses us. We're instruments. We're channels through which His Word can be proclaimed. We see that here, God is working not only on Saul, but He's also working on Ananias. And as He's speaking to Ananias, I love this, because He's telling Ananias, I'm working it out on the other end too, Ananias. And I want you to know that this man Saul, he's in this house, in this particular house. And he's praying right now. He's preparing himself. I've spoken to him saying that there's going to be a man named Ananias come in. I mean, think about these these words from Jesus to Ananias. How comforting it would have been for Ananias to hear these words. Because I'm sure, as we see here in these next few verses, he does what many of us would have done in light of the context. He says, Lord, I've heard some things about this man, Saul. He's done a great deal of harm to your saints. And now, Lord, he has plans to to bind all who call upon your name. And he's going to take them back to Jerusalem. Lord, are are you sure you have the right man? I I love the innocence here expressed by Ananias. He was speaking only what he knew to be true of Saul's past. He was speaking only of those things he knew through others. You see, Ananias was a disciple in Damascus and he had heard of these things of Saul. Saul. He had yet to take into account what the Lord was going to do through this man named Saul. And that's in part where the Lord goes in response. Look at verses 15 and 16. The Lord says, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. See, these verses form a purpose statement, if you will, for the life of Saul. And they serve to outline, I believe, the things to come in the book of Acts. Saul's interactions with the Gentiles, we'll see this, Lord willing, next summer as we study the missionary journeys together. We see his interaction with kings. We'll come across a couple trials. And his interaction with the children of Israel. Saul's life is going to be spent for the sake of the Lord. And you know, when I read this, I oftentimes see this as Saul's purpose before the Lord. But as I read the whole of Scripture, I begin to see that the Lord has called me. And yes, he's called you to be spent as well for the Lord's purposes. If you are in Christ, you too have been chosen. Chosen by God for what purpose? 
to continue doing the things you used to do in the old man? To continue dabbling in the same old sins that separated you from Christ? See, he chose you in him, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he chose you in him before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless without blame before him in love. The Bible says that you are his workmanship. You are his masterpiece, his work of art. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2.10. See, Paul's purpose statement put forth right here in Acts 9, 15 and 16. If you read through the remainder of Acts and read Paul's epistles, you see that the Lord's purposes for Paul's life are lived out according to the Lord's plan. How much greater it would be, how much better it would be if we would walk out our lives according to the Lord's plans, His purposes, than trying to walk our own way, figure it out on our own. See, Ananias here needs no further explanation. The text says he went his way and entered the house. In short, what do we learn there? Ananias, sort of like we learned last week with Philip, Ananias obeyed. He went. He lays his hands on him and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to know his address right up front to him. Brother Saul. Do you see that? Brother Saul. Ananias addresses Saul as a brother. Symbolic of, of what? Keep in mind, big context, big picture here. Symbolic of welcoming Saul, even Saul, the persecutor of the church. Welcoming Saul into the body of Christ. He's seen as a brother. Remember the gospel moving forward. It's moving out of Jerusalem into the regions of Judea and Samaria. And also, I think it's helpful for us to remember something else here. And how Ananias begins this. There's a point here for us. I think there's something important for us right here. You too once crossed over from death to life. You too were once dead in your transgressions. But praise the Lord that God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ, for it is by grace that you have been saved. Right? That's the word from Ephesians chapter 2. There's something instructive here for the church to hear. You see, Ananias addresses Saul as a brother in the Lord, a fellow saint in the household of God. He doesn't treat Saul as a lesser person, but he comes alongside him as a part of the body of Christ. You see, church, when someone's eyes are open to the Lord, here's a question. Do you have the same welcoming, receptive spirit of Ananias ready to assimilate this person into the life of of the church. When you read that same Ephesians 2 text, you begin to see very quickly that you too were once lost. You too were once blind. Before the Lord showed up to rescue you, that's where you were. You see, because being dead, you can't do anything on your own. You were dead. God showed up and rescued you. The same mercy, the same love, the same kindness and grace extended to you has now been poured out upon this other brother, this other sister. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
Is it possible today that the church has forgotten what God has done? Has the church lost sight, perhaps, of what it takes for one to cross over from death to life? When God calls a sinner to repentance and faith, when a genuine biblical conversion takes place and a new life blossoms in Christ, how do we respond as a church? Do we know how to respond? What is it to be converted? I believe, I believe there was one this week as I was studying this text. And, and instead of coming up with my own, I, I'm using his. I believe these are helpful words for us to get some handles on this conversion. What is it? Conversion is the radical turn from an enslaved life of pursuing sin. To a free life of pursuing and worshiping God. Conversion is a change of life, not merely a decision. This change is not a matter of moral rectitude, self-help, or mere behavior modification. It's not accomplished by outward displays or religious practices like walking the aisle. It cannot be accomplished by human effort, but only by the power of God. You see, conversion is a change so dramatic that it requires the intervention of God the Holy Spirit. In conversion, the Spirit of God grants the twin graces of repentance and faith to sinners who turn from sin and turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So conversion then requires conviction of sin. That leads to turning around. That's repentance. Turning from sin. Hating and forsaking sin. Knowing it's displeasing to God. And relying only on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That's faith. Matthew 18, verse 3, Jesus says, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted, the word there has in mind changed inwardly. Unless you are converted, changed inwardly, and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you gone through such a conversion? See, Ananias here in the text, he is the vessel chosen by the Lord to communicate Christ's message. And a church is intended to communicate Christ's message. And the Holy Spirit in you points you to the very words of Christ. Who are you communicating this gospel message with? Are the truths of Christ being communicated by the household of God? How can we but preach any other message than Christ who serves as the head of the church? Christ whose very blood purchased the church. Ananias is an instrument of Christ for restoring Saul's sight and granting the Holy Spirit. Ananias is a disciple of the Lord. He was not an apostle, but nevertheless, he was chosen by the Lord to communicate for his purposes. He's available to hear the Lord. He's obedient, and he's faithful to communicate the Lord's message. Church, these are the very same characteristics, the very same things he's calling for his church to be doing today. The mark of a child of God, one who has crossed over from death to life. Look at verse 18. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. There was this peeling away. This like scale. There was a peeling away. And Saul was able to see again. Praise God he was able to see. But that's not the best part. You see Saul who had been blind spiritually could now see with spiritual eyes. He was born again. 
He was regenerated. He had been made new. He crossed over from death to life. I want you to notice what happens first. After he receives his physical and spiritual sight, the text says he arose and was baptized. You see, what he does here is he responds to God's grace by being obedient in baptism. His first act of obedience in Christ is to get baptized. To identify, here's what he's doing in that. He's identifying himself with this man who pursued him on the road. He's identifying himself with the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's also identifying himself with Christ's church. You see, beforehand, he had missed this connection between Christ and the church. And now he's identifying himself in this baptism. And that's, when we think about baptism, that's, that's the essence of baptism. Identification. If I could just define it one word. Identification. We are identifying with Christ. And we are identifying with Christ's church. After being baptized, look at what he does. It says, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. You see, he had been in prayer. He had he fasted for three days. He now eats some food. He regains some strength. And he begins his journey with the Lord by what? By spending some time with other members of Christ's household in Damascus. I, and, you know, I get to 9 verse 20. I, I just, I, I love 9 verse 20. You see, there's this life before Christ. And perhaps some of you can pinpoint a few specific handles on the time leading up to your new life in Christ. But see, 9 verse 20 is the beginning of what life in Christ produces. It's the beginning of life in Christ. A new life in Christ results in a different way of walking. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. New creation. New life. The newness in you has everything to do with the Holy Spirit in you. The newness in you is predicated upon what Christ accomplished at the cross. Being in Christ, your union with Christ is the foundation upon which you can walk in newness of life. It's because you are in Christ that you can reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues. That he is the son of God. You know, prior to this time, Saul had preached the law. He had missed the Christ. He was knowledgeable and learned in the law. He knew the law, but he missed the Christ. This Christ who serves as the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Romans 10 verse 4. Written by Paul himself, carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, the very one he had stumbled over, he now embraces. Immediately. Immediately. Leads me to believe shortly after he was doing these very things we're reading about in verse 20. Immediately. There's to be a change. There's to be something different. And I think immediately speaks to that difference in you. Immediately he preached Christ. But note specifically what he preached. I believe this is important. Text says that he is the Son of God. And I believe if you turn just for a moment to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1 is helpful here. And I'll start reading verse 11. Paul says here in, in Galatians 1, verse 11, he says, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me, not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, 
but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about this morning. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Here it is. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, when it pleased God to reveal who? His son. When it pleased God to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Talks about how he went to Arabia for a period and returned again to Damascus. The point here is the Son of God. The Son of God. When it pleased God to reveal his Son in me. God opened his eyes to be able to see. He gave Saul understanding of the Son, the Christ, the one who had come and lived among them for a time. The one who willingly laid down his life, serving as a substitute, an atoning sacrifice, the spotless Lamb of God, John 1.29. Notice God's purpose attached to revealing his Son to Saul, that he might preach Christ among the Gentiles there in Galatians chapter 1. That was Saul's purpose. That was going to be his purpose. That he would preach Christ among the Gentiles. And so having now been joined to Christ and to Christ's church, Saul has found preaching this Christ. Preaching that he is the Son of God. Church, do you know how foundational that is that we preach? Jesus. And specifically that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John chapter 5, 11-13 says, and this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in whom? His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You see, those who heard Saul preaching in the synagogues were amazed. Look at verse 22, back in Acts 9. In verse 22, they were amazed at what they were hearing. You see, because what they heard didn't match the Saul they had heard about. This man is different. Evidence of a changed life. Evidence of conversion. Evidence of an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. In the original language there, that word proving actually means to bring together many parts from which a person is able to draw a conclusion. Bringing together many parts from which a person is able to draw a conclusion. So Paul brings together these numerous Old Testament passages which he would have known. He knew them very well. And he brings all these Old Testament passages together. And what's he doing? He's proving, beyond a shadow of a doubt, proving, pointing to these scriptures, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He's the one. And it's at this point where you take a step back and and you can't miss this. Saul is in. Do you see this? 
Saul is in. He is on board. Two feet in. None of this, right? Or not, not over here, way over here. He, he is in. No half-hearted effort. Saul is a new creation in Christ. And are you ready for this? Not only is he a new creation, he's acting like it. He's acting like it. He's preaching the Christ. He's living this. You see, the amazement from others comes as they see a changed life in progress. The amazement doesn't stem from preaching Christ. A Christian is intended to preach Christ, to speak of his name, to walk as Christ walked. That's what a Christian is to be doing. The Lord got Saul's attention that day on the road to Damascus. And the people of Damascus had heard of this man and they braced for his coming. What they heard and saw, though, was not what they expected. The world, you see, the world has grown accustomed to Christianity. Christianity of the carnal flavor, if you will. This Christianity that that just secludes itself on a Sunday and, and tends not to speak of the name of Jesus throughout the week. Church, we need to understand, Christ did not go to the cross so you could live carnally. That is not a third option, by the way, in Corinthians. The natural man, spiritual man, and then there's the carnal man. There's some who submit, oh, well, that's the third one. No, Paul's putting it forward to the shame of those in the church at Corinth that this is how some of them are living as carnal Christians. It ought not to be. He died that you might live for him, not simply attend a church service on Sunday morning. He died that you might be part of the family of God. Not simply to cultivate a nice family here on earth. That is part of it, no doubt. But we've got to understand a bigger picture here. The bigger picture that's presented by the Lord himself. The family of God. You see, he died that you might become the righteousness of God. Greg, you read that scripture this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He died to free you from the bondage of sin to enable you to walk in victory. You are familiar with Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Question, how is it that Saul acted so differently to those looking on in Damascus? Christ was living in him. Question, what would be the pattern for Saul's life from that point forward? Living by faith in the Son of God. Question, on what basis would such a life be lived out? The basis for such a life being lived out is the cross of Jesus Christ, church. You see, Paul says he loved me and he gave himself for me. Where did he do that in particular, church? He did that at the cross. He poured out his love. The love of Christ now compels him to live each day by faith. And this love has been poured out in his heart. Romans 5 verse 5 says, by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Church, we need to understand there are two groups of people here. There are those who are converted. There are those who are not converted. (laughs) The testimony of Saul's life. 
is put forward not just as a wow kind of story. It, it is that and it can be that, no doubt about it. The testimony of Saul's life is, is put forward to help you see what biblical conversion looks like. No, not everyone is going to have the blinding light experience. I'm not saying that. I'm not advocating that biblical conversion means you have to have dialogue, literal dialogue with Christ, like Saul had dialogue with him on the road. No. What I am saying is this. Saul's conversion ought to compel you to live by faith for the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul's conversion affected his heart, affected his mind, his will, his affection, his entire being. He left behind those things he used to do. He pursued Christ. His delight and desire now was to be found in Christ. He saw himself crucified, in fact, with Christ. And when you turn and you read those words in Philippians chapter 3, and you see these things that at one time in his life he had confidence in. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me? These things used to be gain to Paul. What things were gained to me? I've counted loss for Christ. And he says, yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered, I have suffered. Wasn't that part of what Christ said to him? I will show you how many things you must suffer, bear for my name's sake. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, walking in newness of life. You see, he comes back time and again to loss and gain. Loss and gain. All things I count as loss, that I may gain Christ. Perhaps you'd like to settle your own conversion today. The Lord is speaking. The Lord perhaps is shining His light. You see, Saul spent some time in prayer submitting himself, surrendering himself to the one who for so long he had persecuted. The light of Christ came upon him and he responded to God's loving initiative. You see, your belief in Christ, receiving him as Lord, is a response to his grace. His opening of your eyes to see. To see what? His accomplished work at the cross. His finished work at the cross. And this work makes your new life in Christ possible. You see, praise the Lord for, for Saul's life after Christ. Praise the Lord that we have a lot of scripture that speaks to Saul's life after Christ. The Bible's filled with unmistakable evidence of one who truly had crossed over from death to life. Church, what is your after 
Christ story going to say? What is it saying right now for those of you who are in Christ? Is there unmistakable evidence that you too have crossed over from death to life? Praise the Lord for Acts chapter 9. For the example of a life changed. God is in the business of changing lives, not just back in the first century. Still, even yet today, He desires to change lives. That we might walk as Christ Himself walked. That we might live as though we have now, we're not living by ourselves, through ourselves, but we, I don't live anymore, Paul says. I, I'm crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but now, having died with Christ, been buried with Christ, I am now committed to walking in newness of life, and that newness of life only comes, only comes through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We thank you so much for the truth that you give to us in your word. I thank you for this example of a life changed. Father, I... I I pray that each one of us here would be able to see and recognize and desire this, this change. Desire to, to walk in your ways. Desire to imitate Christ with our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you gave yourself for us. That you loved us by going to the cross. You sent your son. And he came and he lived here for a while. And he knew his purpose. He carried out your plan for him. He spoke the words you gave him. He operated according to the way that you would have him to operate while he was here. And he went to the cross and he died. And he took our sin upon himself in the flesh at the cross. And Father, we praise you that he didn't stay buried in the tomb. But three days later... According to the scriptures, he was raised. And for some 40 days, he was going about appearing to his disciples, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching them of things pertaining to this kingdom of yours. And then we see after those 40 days that he ascended to be back with you. And then some 10 days later, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, this other counselor that Christ himself had spoken to, who was going to be coming, arrived on the scene. And there was a difference made. We see in the lives of these apostles, these followers of Jesus, they became unashamed to speak the name of Jesus, regardless of the cost. Oh, Father, I pray that today in this culture and society we live in, a culture that so desperately needs to see the light, needs to see someone walking in the light. Father, as we talked this morning, even about this young man before Christ, George Mueller and what he was able to see and witness. He, see, he was able to see something different. He saw a genuine Christian living it out. May we as a body of Christ here at Hope in Christ, may we be those people. May we be the people that you've called us to be. Walking in holiness. Being blameless in your sight. Desiring to 
Speak the name of Jesus unashamedly. Oh, Father, I pray you would use us and I pray we would desire to be spent for your purposes, for your honor, and for your glory in the days ahead. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he rescued us. Thank you for this wonderful work of salvation that you have brought about in us. We praise you for opening our eyes and opening our ears. May we now walk in that truth that you've given to us. And may we desire to please you with our lives, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.